Ertesi'de. <coughs> This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties, and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm, wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing, that the wise would later reprove, wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be happy, whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, or witting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be happy. Let none deceive another, or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another, even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child. So
out by quietening down, finding a suitable posture. So we're not too tired and we're not too tense. Find this balance. Buddha is intense. Buddha also means the one who is awake. We're waking up out of the dream of suffering. We want to be attentive to our meditation. Start. I'll just start with one of the chants that I often do when I meditate. Buddha Minato. Buddha is my mental refuge. Dhamma Minato, the Dhamma is my mental refuge. Sangha Minato, the Sangha is my mental refuge. Buddha, 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 Dhamma, 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 Sangha, Sangha, Sangha. Bama's heart of metta, Bama's heart of benevolence to all beings, including myself. Bama's heart of Karuna, Bama's heart of compassion to all beings, including myself. Bama's heart of Medita, Bama's heart of appreciative joy to all beings, including oneself. Bama's heart of Upeka, Bama's heart of equanimity, of equipose to all beings, including oneself. So we just start by covering everything with white sheets, events, people, thoughts. Cover everything with a white sheet so it vanishes. Agitation, busyness, stories, tiredness, the world. Just let it all go. Let it all vanish into whiteness, vanish into peace. Whatever comes up, just cover it with a white sheet. Let the heart become still and peaceful. Doesn't want any kind of agitation. Let the body be comfortable. Let the heart be at ease. Set up the intention of a humble heart, quiet heart. Now is the time for meditation. Developing samadhi, bhavana is of great importance. The things in the world are many, but the things that are important are few. So we just put down everything else. Suspend any interest in it. Just focus our whole heart on the present.
a suitable posture where the body is relaxed, free from tension. We set the heart on the idea of quietness, calmness, peace. be let go of. We just have a tranquil body. All the various parts and elements of the body tranquil. Calming down, cooling. the in-wind and the out-wind, foot with the in-breath, toe with the out-breath, whatever our theme of meditation is. Just have a total sense of subai, subai, at ease, at ease, at ease with the in-wind, at ease with the outwind. And everything else dissolves into this ease. Foot, down, foot, down. heart, quiet heart, free from tension and agitation, Sabai with the in-breath, Sabai with the out-breath. Letting everything else dissolve, fade away, covered with white sheets. Free from difficulty, free from suffering, 
Bubbles of emptiness, not getting bound up with anything. Just have this delightful peace with the inward, delightful peace with the outward. Nothing else matters. You're not bound up with anything. Just this spacious peace and quietness in the heart. Survive with the inward, survive with the outward.
staying with our meditation object for a moment. Just taking the time for in peace, maybe we might like just stay in peace. Otherwise we can reflect on how we've developed our meditation theme, the means that we use. how we nurtured sati, the mental state that we had, what the result was. Some people can do this while they're meditating and others do it afterwards. This is how we become skillful and what works for us. foundation of peace in the heart. When we have peace in the heart, we can have sati. When we have sati, we can have panya. It's mindfulness and wisdom, sati panya. This is how we brighten our heart. This is how we eventually overcome kilesa, defilements. the meditation and so wish can just stay with the meditation object during the talk and formally end the meditation now. obstacle is learning to be with our meditation object and our mindfulness in a way where we're not tense. We have these two extremes. One is laziness, where we're not being vigilant, not doing what we're meant to be doing. And the other is where we're tense, where we're anxious, where we're caught up with busy busyness and stress and sufferings. And so both of these extremes are wrong. If we're just dull and sleepy and lazy, then we can't practice. And if we're anxious and tense and stressed, we can't practice. And so it's about finding this melody, like the simile of the lute, learning to make our meditation, our mindfulness, something that's in harmony. And so the easiest way to do that is to base our practice on peace. Because when we have peace, 
and we have a sense of sabai, a sense of ease. Our heart is cool, calm, like the wind. The mind is like the wind, it's empty and free. And that's the kind of peace that's useful. Because the more peace that we have, then we can contemplate the Dhamma. Like Ajahn Chah said, if you know if the chicken is in the chicken coop, you know where the chicken is. If the chicken is outside the chicken coop, then it's lost. And this is when we contemplate, like if we decide to contemplate death, like death is certain, we may die at the end of an in-breath, we may die at the end of an out-breath. If we choose a means of contemplation, then we know for that 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes or however long we've determined to contemplate, that we, we know where the chicken is, the chicken is in the coop. And during that time we use the mind to analyse, to contemplate, to investigate, to see clearly with all of our earnest endeavour what this actually means. And whether we do that in a way that's peaceful, like just by repeating a simple mantra with the breath and sustaining that for the period of time, or whether we use our powers of investigation and we actually weigh up evidence and contemplate and investigate and probe into, then that's all the chicken within the chicken coop. We know what our mindfulness is doing, we know what our wisdom is doing, we know the task at hand, and so that's what contemplation is. And so whatever our temperament is, peace, or contemplation, ultimately they all go together. Ajahn Chah said it's like picking up a knife. When you pick up the knife, it has the blunt side and the sharp side, or the handle and the sharp side. So you need the calm and the investigation. If you just have calm, then what's going to happen when we die? How are we ever going to see Lord Buddha's teachings? Lord Buddha had the five regular contemplations for lay people and the ten for those gone forth. And these are the kind of things that we use our peace to look into. That one, a sickness, old age, death. Now these things can arise at any time. And the only way we can contemplate these things is if we actually put our mind on it. And so it's like these, these are the handful of leaves that the Buddha was talking about. He said there's a, to the monks something like, you know, all the leaves in the forest are many. And he picked up a few leaves and he said, but the leaves in my hand are few. And these are the only teachings. These are the only teachings that I've given you because these are the only teachings that lead beyond suffering. And so in Buddhism, the teaching that is unique to a Buddha is the Four Noble Truths suffering, the cause of suffering, the end of suffering, and the path leading to that end. And everything Lord Buddha says goes into those four things. So that's everything. That's our sole purpose of practice, is to see into those four noble truths. And any arahant, any enlightened being, that's the one thing that they all have in common, that they, they have perfected purity, and they've perfected their hearts to the highest, to, to the level beyond the Brahma, the highest God, 
and they've emptied themselves of attachment and seen into those Four Noble Truths. So they're the teachings that we're focused on. And so when we contemplate sickness, I think of all the various sicknesses that could come to us. You know, at any moment, any sickness, our intestines could become blocked, we could have a heart attack, we could have a brain aneurysm, we could trip and crack our skull open, we could get some kind of lung disease or chest disease, we could get leprosy, all these different things at any moment could happen. And so, but if we don't see that that's the nature of the body, if that's the nature of conditioned phenomena, then when these things arise, we suffer. Rather than seeing when these things arise, that yes, the Buddha said these things arise, but because we practice the Dhamma, then we know the mind is superior to the body, that the mind is forerunner, that the mind is chief. And so even when we get faced with sickness, we can develop the seven factors of awakening. We can develop rapture and one-pointedness and peace and, and all these things that come out of the seven factors of awakening. So even in the face, maybe in grave sickness, we have to have a lot of equanimity. But that power of all the time that we've meditated and all the time that we've contemplated, then when these sicknesses come, we're ready for them. We know, yes, this is the truth, this is what the Buddha said. Because otherwise we're just attaching to the world. We're infatuated with health, we're infatuated with life, we're infatuated with youth, and we're infatuated with everything that is loving and dear to us, as if the Buddha's teachings didn't even exist. And so the only way we can see into these things is to actually contemplate them actually to sustain our mind upon them, is to actually see deeply into them. And I, I think even like the Maranasati, the Maranasati, the recollection of death, for example, you know, that's a supreme recollection, because if we actually put our mind onto death, like we could literally die at the end of this in-breath, the in-breath stopped, and, didn't, and the out-breath didn't continue, or the out-breath ceased, and the in-breath didn't continue, then within a short time we would die. And that's it. Story over. And then our upadana, our attachments and clinging, lead us on to another birth. And the Buddha said that in the space of an aeon, in the space of a universe cycle, which who knows how long that is, maybe trillions of years just for one universe to form and cease, in the space of a universe cycle, if our bones didn't crumble away, there would be enough to fill the Himalayan mountain. So think of how many bones and corpses of skeletons it would take to fill a Himalayan mountain. And think how, how strong our attachments are in this life. So think of how strong our attachments have been in every life, of one aeon. And so this is the kind of thing that gives us nibbida, a sense of weariness with existence. But that weariness is wise, because what it does is say, don't focus on loved ones, don't focus on what is liked and wanted, don't focus on health and youth and all of these things, because they're all impermanent. They're all subject to change, subject to alteration. That in the end, everything that arises will cease. 
But because everything that arises will cease, we know that suffering has arise. We've all here experienced great sufferings in our minds and our lives at various points in time. And so if suffering arises, suffering arises due to a cause. This is what the Buddha's teachings say. So we can see from our own experience that suffering ceases. And so what we need to do is learn to be a scientist in how to make suffering continuously cease. And the only way we can do that is by getting at the underlying tendencies. So all those tendencies throughout our string of rebirths, you know, as long as you go back in the cable line, there's just more rebirth, there's more attachment, there's more birth. So much so that the further you go back, eventually you don't even know anybody. The attachments that you have are different. And so that's the long string of samsara, that turning of the wheel of samsara that's just unknowable, unbeginningable, unfathomable. But we're like that blind turtle or tortoise poking its head to the surface once every hundred years, and we poke their head through that yoke. We've actually got a human birth, which is the best, because the human birth we see into suffering. Or a heavenly birth is difficult to practice because you're surrounded by happiness. But in the human birth, we're surrounded by suffering. So it's easy for us to see. All Buddhas became Buddhas as a human being. So the human birth is the prime ground for seeing into suffering. And so we have the human birth. We have the handful of leaves. And so the best way to practice, and Lumpur Tate said, is first we need a foundation in, in what the teachings actually are. So we need a foundation in sila, in morality, in the three adages of the Buddha, which is like to remove evil, to do good, to purify the heart. So we have this focus in what we're doing, understanding that the Buddha was a supreme being, that such a thing exists. And so everything that the Buddha taught was true. But we can't rely on what other people said. We can't rely on what it says in books. You know, the only way we're ever going to go beyond our own doubts is to realize these things for ourselves. The only way we're going to realize them for ourselves is put them as the number one thing in our lives. So when we're developing peace, we use that peace to contemplate. And when we, contem when we get bound up in the world, we know how to use skillful means to lessen our attachment. So we can be more focused on seclusion, we can be more focused on peace, on quietness, on calmness, on freedom from agitation, freedom from busyness. And we learn to swim, swim against the current. Because it's difficult to get to the island of Nirvana. You know, this, raft, this raft, the Buddha said, we make of the Dhamma, but he also said to travel quickly and travel lightly. And what it means to travel lightly is to contemplate these teachings. So we lessen our attachments. Because if we die right now, have we solved our attachments? Are we, are we ready to die right now? Or do, or do we still have things that we need to do? We still have unsolved attachments. Are we ready to face pain? Are we ready to face death? Are we ready to let go? In one of the previous lives of the Buddha, 
He didn't even shed a tear when his own son died. And neither did his wife or, or the nurse or the child. Not one of them shed a single tear when the child was bitten by a snake or something and died. Why is that? Because they were contemplating these things. Bodhisatta, in his previous life, was so wise in that life that he understood the inherent nature of existence. And so he taught his family to constantly think about these things, to think about death, to think that when somebody dies, they fare according to their actions. So when they die, why do we cry for somebody who's died? You know, when they were alive, they had an opportunity to live, they had an opportunity to act based on their own volition, and now they're dead, so now they're fared according to their deeds. So what is there to cry about? It's just the law of karma. But when we have the age of the Buddha, we can actually follow Lord Buddha's teachings. And so this is where we make a raft of the Dhamma. So we, we get the twigs and the sticks and we tie it all together. And these, these are the teachings of the Buddha that are actually useful to us, personally. And then the 84,000 doors to the deathless, the 84,000 doors of Dhamma that the Buddha teach, everything arises out of that. When the very Venerable Sariputta taught, all of his wisdom arose out of what the Buddha said. So the Buddha is like the trunk and the roots, and his community are like the branches and the leaves. So when you look at a tree, it's hard to fathom the roots, roots that are underneath it. A massive root structure is there that we don't think about. And this is like the Buddha. So all of those past lives that he spent perfecting himself, that's why the Buddha is a difficult path. And when, when we become enlightened, there's a thing called the Ten Spiritual Perfections that we bring to fulfillment. And in the commentaries, it says that a Buddha develops 30 spiritual perfections. So there's three levels of purification that they go through. So much so, in one of the Buddha's past lives, when he perfected the Dhanaparami, the, the giving, the perfection of giving, that there was an earthquake. You know, the earth shuddered under the weight of his good karma. And so throughout the process of becoming a Buddha, you know, the, the goodness of these beings is immense. And so we take this, whatever teachings seem suitable to our temperament, and that's what we make a raft out of. And what do we empty our attachment to? We have empty our attachment to our loved ones, to our possessions, to the elements, to all of these things that if we died right now, we would suffer for. And so we have to, as Ajahn Chah said, die before we die. That's what the practice is. It actually take the peace, the joy, the calmness, the one-pointedness, the clarity, the wisdom, the purification of the nervous system, and apply that to see things as they really are. And just like we take that feather, if you take the feather too close to the fire, it will shrivel. So you don't want the feather to shrivel. So we want to, if we can, develop the happy and the fast path, the easy and the fast path. So we empty ourselves of attachment and we practice in a way so we're wise, so we're peaceful, so we're calm. So that clarity, that wisdom, you know, this is what protects us from being sad, from being upset from being depressed, from being lost 
in what other people say, in wrong views and wrong paths. It's, it's what's like a shield in our heart, a banner in our heart. So the Dharma literally becomes like a, a light that has been set aright. So they say, if you knock a lantern over, then you can't see at night time. In olden days they had the lanterns. And so what you do is you set the lantern back, back up again. And so you have a light that you can see shapes and forms. And so this is when we practice the Dhamma. The more we practice, the more we focus on our sila, our morality, so we get to the point where it's unshakable. We develop our dana and our resolution. And all of these things come together, then the mind appears like a bright light. If we were to look at the mind, it becomes luminous. It's like the moon set free from the clouds. And that's the kind of mind that's capable of actually overcoming kalesa of defilements, of overcoming the padana attachments, that we don't want to stick to the world anymore, that we don't want to be caught up in difficult and wrong and confusing paths. So we have this heart that delights in peace, that delights in mindfulness, that delights in seclusion. And all of that comes together to true wisdom, to true seeing, that we can realize path and fruit, that we can perfect spiritual perfections, that these things are within our grasp. All we have to do is decide that we want to do these things and make up our mind that they're truly important, that if death came right now, what is it more important that we do? Be caught up in busyness, restlessness, worldliness, or be focused on the few leaves, a handful of leaves that the Buddha told us to be focused on. So this is why we have to work out what our temperament is, so we can practice within that. You know, maybe some people want to focus on generosity more. Or some people focus on the purity of heart, on, on the sila more. Or some people they want to focus on hiriotipa and a sense of moral shame and fear of consequences. Or some people they want to focus on the peace of their meditation and use that to contemplate. But we find the path that is suitable to us and then we apply ourselves to it. But this is where, you know, we have to see it's like a small fish in the ocean compared to a giant whale. And then beyond the giant whale, we have the great nagas in the ocean, which are many leagues long, massive, immeasurable compared to a whale. And so these are like the arahants, the enlightened beings. And so in our practice, we have this, the sangha, and why the Buddha has the ordained Sangha as the main symbol is because that's the prime ground for renunciation. That's the prime ground for being focused on what's truly important. So then we take as our example the wisdom of these beings, but then we also look for examples within our station of existence. So as lay people, you know, we have to look at our lives and see how we can apply the Dhamma that's suitable to us, that we don't stress ourselves out, and we're also not lazy. And the way when I started practicing, one of the things that I came across was just to start with what is the most difficult area in our lives and tackle that. Just be 100% that this thing not going to allow to occur anymore. 
not going to allow the mind to follow after this anymore. To the point where maybe, you know, some days you have to wrestle with the mind for many hours. But in the end, within a few seconds, you never allow these things to be in the mind. Now that's, that's the power of resolution. And that's the power that we really get to the defilements. But until we have that commitment to want to see our faults and overcome them, to want to have wise friends and follow wisdom, then it's going to be like we're swimming but we feel like we're drowning. And so, But when we have the wise friends, we learn to swim, we learn to build the raft, we learn what the Dharma is, and then that will lead us upwards, that will lead us against the stream of the world, that will lead us to the far shore. And just to have this thing that we're not half-hearted, that we're not faint-hearted, that, that we think that we can do it, that it is possible. And like Lumpur Cha said, whether one life or 10,000 lives, may I see the Dhamma, may I do it the way that Lord Buddha taught. Because one of the teachings I learned many years ago was the Buddha is the teacher, I am a disciple. The Buddha knows, I do not know. Meaning, the Buddha is the one with the roots and the trunk. Everything grows out of that. So if we focus on that supreme teaching, if we focus that whatever's in the books or whatever teachers say, you know, I don't know, but I know what the Buddha said was true. And I know that the Dharma is true. And so by making this our vehicle, you know, this is the raft that takes us to the far shore. And like Lumpur Ted once said, there was even a monk who just focused on a small fish eating a bigger fish as his meditation object. That's all. Small fish eating a bigger fish. And that was enough for him to become enlightened. So, meaning, whatever we take as our practice, we just put our faith in that. That we're not in a hurry for quick results. That some days the defilements are going to win. Some days difficulties are, are going to assail us and overcome us. But each time we just come back to the Buddha, each time we come back to the Dharma, each time we come back to strengthening our raft and learning to swim. And then we'll get stronger, we'll empty ourselves of attachment to life, attachment to loved ones, attachment to belongings. And we'll strengthen our faith in the Buddha, the Dharma and the Sangha till the mind does become luminous. And when the mind is luminous, and we continue that state, then the Buddha said, whether seven years, seven months, seven weeks or seven days, we will see Nibbana, we will realize it. That's all it takes, is having that luminous consciousness, which is mindfulness. So that is the Dhamma talk. Now let us chant the verses of sharing and aspiration. Through the goodness that arises from my practice, may my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue, my mother, my father, and my relatives, the sun and the moon, and all virtuous leaders of the world, may the highest gods and evil forces, celestial beings, Guardian spirits of the earth and the Lord of death, may those 
those who are friendly, indifferent or hostile. May all beings receive the blessings of my life. May they soon attain the threefoldness and realize the deathless. Through the goodness that arises from my practice and through this act of sharing, May all desires and attachments quickly cease, and all harmful states of mind, until I realize Nibbana, and every kind of birth, may I have an upright mind, with mindfulness and wisdom, austerity and vigor. May the forces of delusion not take hold, nor weaken my resolve. Lodula is my excellent refuge, unsurpassed is the protection of the Dharma. The solitary Buddha is my noble Lord, the Sangha is my supreme support. Through the supreme power of all these, may darkness and delusion be dispersed. Yata varivaha pura pariparenti sagaram Evang evayito dinang petanang upakapati chitang patitang tonghang kipamewa Samijitu sabe parentu sangapa Chando panara so yata manijotira so yata Bityo evachantu sabaruko ina Satu mate bawan tuan tarayo sukiti kayu ko bawa apiwa tanasili sani changguta pacaino cataro damawatanti ayuano sukang. 